Welcome to Toxic Tangents, powered by Million Marker. We're here to discuss and answer questions about everyday toxic chemicals in our lives. Learn more about Million Marker and how we can help minimize your toxic exposures at millionmarker.com. And now, here's our latest episode. you're back with Toxic Tangents. Today we're going to be talking about infertility in observance of Infertility Week. With us today we have, as always, Jenna Hua, our CEO, Joe Rochester, our CSO, Chris Ribbons, our head of people, Grace Middleton, and myself, Tina. We also work for Million Marker. And we're going to first pass it off to Jenna, who will talk about her own infertility struggles to start this conversation. Uh, Thank you, Tina, for starting the conversation. Part of the reason I started a million marker was because of my own fertility struggle, that I have two super rare conditions that occurs in pregnancy that prevents me from carrying the pregnancy to term. Uh, That happened four times. Unfortunately, the doctors couldn't tell me anything about the reason I would experience these problems. And there we did all the genetic testing, we did a lot of other things, and there was no reason. And that's kind of prompted me to start thinking, do I have any environmental factors that could have uh, impacted my own fertility? And when I reached out to doctors to do such tests, and that was not available. And that was part of the reason to start Million Marker so we can empower everyone, not just people experiencing infertility to have the data and know what's inside of them and be able to make changes and optimize their health and fertility. It's very interesting, you know, this week is the National Infertility Week and not a lot of people are actually aware, like, you know, how big the problem is. Like the emphasis on avoiding pregnancy when you're younger like in sex ed and everything oh yeah birth control but no one ever talks about like they think it's like a skewed view that getting pregnant is so easy that when you're older and you try to get pregnant like people probably assume okay like it's going to be easy but then because that's what I was taught like you got to be careful you can get pregnant but then Obviously, so many women have struggles and men have struggles with infertility, and it's so unexpected. Yeah, that was the first thing when I wanted to get pregnant. I wanted saw OBGYN, and the first thing he said was like, it's, you know, there's only a third or 30% chance or even less maybe of healthy young people getting pregnant the first time. Um, So he was like, don't expect to get pregnant the first time. Um, which is, you know, he has to tell people that because like you said, people don't know that. If you look on CDC website, you can see that, you know, if, if a couple have been trying to get pregnant and having unprotected sex, if they don't get pregnant within a year, they're considering infertile. And that's sort of like a general rule. But under the infertility umbrella, there are also not just like getting pregnant is only the first step. And then carrying through the pregnancy, carrying a baby to full term, that's a whole other process. And there are many things can happen during this process. So I think the stats pretty much shows that about, you know, 6% of the people or couple in the US are experiencing infertility. And that's like, you know, considering what's the population size in the US, 328 million people, 6%, that's already talking about almost 20 million people experiencing this. And that's like, 
for people who are cannot get pregnant within a year. That's a lot of people. So the problem is a lot more common than than we act, we, we think. Right. I have a question for you, Jenna. When you did bring up the topic of environmental chemicals to doctors, like how did they respond? Were they like, "Oh, that's a good point," or did they kind of look at you like you were crazy? Or I think the doctor when I first brought it up, I think the doctor were kind of surprised that I knew this. And then many of the doctors, I felt I've seen many many specialists, and and many of them when I brought it up, it's a, they kind of gave me this a blank eye. You know, they they don't know what to say. Because the majority of them are not even aware that people should be worried about this. The only test that that is available related to environmental exposure is heavy metal tests. Yes, that's important. Mercury, lead, cadmium. These are all very, very important. But there are a whole slew of other environmental chemicals that people don't even talk about that are also very important. So if there are so many steps along the way where something could go wrong or there could be a complication, is it can we pinpoint the cause of infertility? And if so, what are some of the possible factors involved? Yes, I think there are so many steps to pregnancy. So first, obviously, the w- women have to release the egg. And then that's like coming, the eggs are coming from the ovary. And then the men's sperm have to join the egg and then along to fertilize the egg. Then the fertilized egg have to go through the woman's fallopian tube to get into the uterus. And then an embryo must attach to the uterus in order for it to develop through, you know, 10 months of time. So you think about it, all the organ involved, all the step involved, there could be a problem with the ovary. There could be the problem with the testes where the sperm is coming from. And it could be a problem with the, the fallopian tube. There could be a problem with the uterus. So all these factors could play into a successful pregnancy. And there could be a problem along the way. And all these reproductive organs are much tied to your reproductive hormones. A lot of these toxic chemicals that we talked about could impact these hormones, therefore could have impact on the whole pregnancy itself or even getting pregnant. There's uh, one more factor we haven't talked about yet, but a little bit going deeper into the egg and the sperm. These chemicals have shown to cause epigenetic changes. And what that means is we have our DNA. This DNA can be mutated or damaged. And some of these chemicals are actually involved, that kind of damage. But what we've also found is these chemicals can change the epigenetics. So this is how the DNA is read or transcribed. The message of the DNA comes out. And that message can be changed on the surface of the DNA. Some of these chemicals, even as you're walking around being exposed, they're affecting your egg or sperm DNA. And these changes can act across generations as well. Yes, I think I read a study a while back saying certain chemicals could impact your grandkids, pretty much. That's what they see, at least in animal models. It it could pass on to the third generation you could have, uh, which is like really, really interesting. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that, you know, these chemicals started being created generations ago, and now you're seeing the current generations having problems with fertility, you know, and whether we can make that connection directly or not, it's hard to say, but it seems like a logical connection. Right. And we talk about the chemical revolution happened in the, like the 50s, 40s and 50s is kind of when these chemicals started being produced in mass. And uh, one of the ways we actually discovered that this endocrine disruption exists is a chemical called DES, diethylstilbestrol, was given to pregnant women and they found out, or anti-miscarriage 
perhaps, oh, yes. although it didn't do what it said it was going to do. And then it harmed the children and their their grandchildren too. Their fighting effects. Yeah, I thought D DS was also trying to treat morning sickness, or or, or yeah, there was other ones too. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of women got prescribed this medication, and the impact was that not just uterine cancer, but many other cancer, and obviously impact their fertility, and not just to their daughter generation, but but also granddaughter generation. Yeah, I think it didn't it end up having the result of changing the sh the shape of the uterus for for the future generations. Yeah, where they they were not able then to to carry a, a pregnancy mm -hmm. and certain kinds of uh, cancers. And also they affected the, the boys that were born as well. So there's yeah lots of different effects, but this was basically synthetic estrogen they were giving to women. Some of these chemicals we're talking about like BPA and phthalates, they're not as potent as this the synthetic estrogen, but we are exposed to them constantly. So we don't, we're exposed to them constantly and low levels seem to have effects as well. If there has been decades of science and research backing up the causes of infertility and pointing it back to these chemicals and other environmental exposures, why are people still so uncomfortable talking about it? People don't talk about it. I think there are, there are multiple levels to the problem. One is the societal problem. People have expectations that, you know, you should procreate, you should reproduce. And when you cannot, you know, have, say, have a healthy pregnancy or get pregnant, a lot of time people also feel shameful, I guess, or guilt, I guess, particularly women. I, I think that during like my first, after my first failed pregnancy, I didn't really want to talk to anybody. It was a very, I don't even know how to describe it. it maybe it's like a little bit guilt, the disappointment. And it it's almost feels like, uh, what did I do in my previous life to d deserve this? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But then, but then after like, uh, you know, after my second time and uh, I was like, okay, need to talk to someone about it. Uh, once you open it up and then all, all my other friends also open it up. It seems that many people experience this problem. It's as we mentioned before, it's like very, very common. Right. Even if you have like success, even if you successfully get pregnant, there could be many things could happen during your pregnancy, particularly when you consider age, right? A lot of my friends are in their 30s or late 30s. Stats have already shown that if you're over 35, your chances of getting pregnant or the chances of you having potential problematic pregnancy is a lot higher. These are the issues, but it really needs to be normalized. Right. In your network, how many of these women kind of speak with the perspective that it's them who is responsible for this infertility as opposed to the things that they're exposed to uncontrollably. I think many times the people also just don't have the knowledge of everything okay. because it's yeah. like very, very complicated. So mm -hmm. these women, they always tend to look for, okay, do they have any issues? Mm -hmm. I felt also people always start the issue with women rather than right. men, but it really right. takes two to tango. Right. Um, so there's also a whole men part. I used to wonder, it's like, why couldn't men get pregnant? You know, take off of the, right. the burden we have. Like, like seahorses. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have more kids if that was the case. <laughs> so true, though. You know, I when, when I got pregnant the first time, we tried for, I think it took us about three years to get pregnant. And the whole process was they were always just looking at what my problem was 
it took a long time before they actually had my husband test his sperm and see if there was an issue there. And, and it was a combination of the two of us. And, and luckily we were able to get pregnant on our own, but it took a long time to get to that point. And even once we got there, I think men have a really hard time with the whole process and it's embarrassing to them. And they even just to get their sperm tested just seems like this, this taboo thing to do. And, you know, I think people just need to talk about it more. It's, it happens with more people than they think. And I found the same thing too. I have a very large extended family, a lot of cousins, and I didn't realize until, you know, just recently how many of my cousins have had miscarriages and have had problem had problems getting pregnant because they didn't talk about it. And and it seems silly that we should have been talking about it to be able to compare what was going on with us and find out if there were any family issues there, but nobody would talk about it. And you hope that by people becoming aware of the fact that it's more common, that that will change. Yeah. Yeah. And also, no, because I didn't go through the process, but it seems like they look at the woman first, like, and it's so much easier to test for sperm issues. That's true. <laughs> it's like the easiest <laughs> test in the world, like non-invasive, but then yeah. that's like the last thing they go to. <laughs> like do exactly. that first. Yeah. I actually wouldn't be here today if it weren't for, uh, my mom always tells me. So there's like a four-year gap between my brother and I, and it's because this might be TMI, but my dad was having issues and she kept pushing him to see a doctor and like talk to someone about it. And he just was like brushing it off. And then finally, like he got help and everything. And I'm here today because of it. But I definitely agree. Like men have a harder time accepting that it's their problem. Also, it reminds me of The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have seen that. But it's like the men, it was the men that like, it's the woman. So Well, biologically, so men produce sperm every three weeks. Biologically more common for something to maybe disrupt sperm production because it's happening all the time. And it's also perhaps easier to fix, in quotes, a problem. And we we talk about, you know, testing men for their toxic chemical exposures. That's even more important for men because they can make a fresh batch in three weeks. And if they change their lifestyle, um, those sperm will be healthier. So with that new batch, would they be on less affected or like just unaffected by the chemicals that they were like getting exposed to three weeks prior? Right. It's probably more complicated than that, but okay. direct oh. exposure would be less because they oh, have because they're just oh interesting. Right. They also there are also studies showing, yeah, you know, for men, if they change their lifestyle, that talking about quit smoking, drink less alcohol, and exercise, having a healthy diet and reduce their chemical exposures, that it can dramatically improve their sperm quality. I made my husband stop drinking when we were trying to get pregnant. <laughs> when I was trying to get pregnant, and even when I was pregnant, you know, they didn't talk about chemical, you know, toxic exposure at that point in time. Um, It's kind of become a new topic. And oh, how I wish they would have, you know, I was having problems and not knowing that there are so many things out there that you can avoid, you know, in your daily life that can make things easier and can can make your pregnancy healthier. And to to avoid some of those issues can be very, fairly simple to avoid BPA and, and phthalates and those simple simple changes that you can make in your life. 
It's more almost like the low-hanging fruit because swapping out your personal care products using better quality products in your kitchen, in your you know bathroom is a lot easier than, hey, I need to like lose weight in a month. Exactly. Or or <laughs> I need to like quit smoking uh, or quit drinking alcohol or or doing other things. It's such a low-hanging fruit that we really want to promote people to do before they before they're even thinking about getting pregnant. Right. Well, and, and again, for women too, you know, you're, you have your eggs all your life. So to make those changes when you're younger, it, it's, it's just a better choice. You know, you, we don't know how much that affects your eggs at that point in time. Yeah. One thing I found out when I first started seeing fertility doctor, they did a ovarian reserve test for me. Then I learned the fact that you actually are, all women are born with a certain amount of eggs when you were born. And then it decreased from that point on. It's not like men, you can produce, as Joe said, you can produce a new batch like every three weeks, uh, but you were actually born. So like, you know, how do you preserve your egg and then keeping good egg quality? It really needs to start young that we need to start educating young women about these issues so they could actually have good quality eggs, right? When they want to have kids. And now as women getting more educated, like we're, we have seen that people are getting kids later and later, particularly for women. And this would be hard because stats shows that, you know, after 35, your chances are a lot lower. So with all this talk about the issues concerning infertility, what do we know about how to treat infertility? I think now the, the, the most common treatment for infertility would be IVF. And then you can already see the trends for IVF is going up. And I think like the stats shows like, you know, over what, 100,000 or actually no, between IVF was first developed until like 2015 or something, uh, we already have over 1 million kids in the U.S. who are born as IVF babies. So IVF is, is, is very, very effective. And for, for anyone don't know what IVF is, what the process, I highly recommend to watch some YouTube video uh, because when I first started in my fertility journey, IVF was, was on the table. I watched some video and I was absolutely fascinated. The science is it's so impressive. It's literally making babies in a Petri dish. It's just very incredible that it could happen. It could really help couples to have, have kids. So there's like many ways and this technology is truly amazing. Could you give us a quick synopsis of what the technology entails? So the technology pretty much involves uh, getting an egg extracted from a woman's body and then getting the sperm. And then you can pick the best sperm and an egg and then pretty much like putting the sperm and egg together in a Petri dish and then let the embryo to grow in a Petri dish before you implant it back to the woman's body. So for the first stage of the, the embryo development, it literally happens in a Petri dish. We should also point out that the chemicals that we've been talking about, BPA and phthalates, can affect the IVF success. So they've been shown to affect the quality of the embryos as well as attachment, I believe. So people that are undergoing IVF should really, try, men and women, should really try to avoid these chemicals, maybe get tested to see if they're being exposed from places they don't know about to get more bang for their buck, I guess, to make sure what all the money they're spending on this IVF is as successful as possible. Oh, yes. It's very expensive for doing IVF. I think the average is about $15,000 per cycle. 
And most of the couple will require two to three cycles to actually get a successful embryo or implantation. So it's very, very expensive considering, you know, if you want us to have a really successful IVF, then by all means, you should try to avoid these chemicals and to ensure your success. And so when you speak of these cycles, is that bookended by the woman's period menstrual cycle? Is that what you mean? Uh, it's not so much for the menstrual cycle. A cycle of IVF pretty much involves like extracting the egg and then putting the sperm and the egg together and then figuring out, okay, are they fertilized? And once okay. they're fertilized, like when you put, put it in a woman's body, can, can it be attached to the uterus? And that would be mm-hmm. like one cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not a fertility doctor. I think we, we will be getting a fertility doctor on our show to talk about this. It's, you know exactly when does the, the cycle end. But, you know, as a consumer or as a a couple, I think your ultimate outcome would be, okay, is the embryo implanted successfully in a woman's uterus? Can this embryo be developed, you know, pass on, say, the first trimester? Because a lot of miscarriages actually happen during first trimester. So, you know, once the embryo is implanted, can we get through the first trimester? And that's a pretty good indication of, okay, is this cycle actually successful? So in, in talking about this this cycle and this process, I mean, what would you recommend with people as far as um, getting tested for their exposure? You know, when is a good time? Obviously, you know, you could test long before you start this process, but during that process, you know, what would be a good recommended testing cycle, you know, during a pregnancy? I actually get asked that really often. And then people also even ask like how often they need to be tested. I don't think there's any consensus in the scientific literature to show like what's the optimal time to be tested. Uh, and that I think that's something that Million Marker is trying to figure out in the future when we have more data is what's the optimal time? How often does people do people need to be tested? Uh, but in general, these chemicals uh, could change very rapidly and they're supposed to be transient and you're supposed to be able to get rid of them, you know, within 48 hours. The issue is that it's very hard for people to change their habit, for example, dietary habit. So people continue to get these exposures. So we would definitely recommend people get, you know, two tests before they get pregnant. So one test to get their baseline. And then if they make any changes, get another test to confirm. If they say relocate or if they have any other things, events happening in their life, we would recommend them to get tested again just to follow up and then confirm. Also, oftentimes I could I could see this as a good reminder because again, people tend to fall back to their routine activity and forget about avoiding these chemicals. So it's always good to have a reminder. Uh, and lastly, we think there's also value in terms of continuous testing because as a woman going through pregnancy, if you test yourself continuously throughout the pregnancy, this is also a good indication of your future unborn baby's exposure. So then you get tested again after you get uh, give birth. I think this kind of give you a really good overview of what's your baby's exposure in the future. Uh, talking about being tested during pregnancy, um, when I was pregnant, I, I wasn't tested, but I did try hard to avoid these chemicals. And I did that by not touching receipts. So I'd just leave them on the counter, just ask for no receipt. I avoided plastic containers, especially with food and food preparation, never microwaved 
plastic. I also got a water filter for my shower. There have been studies showing that just taking a shower, you can absorb chemicals from the water into your body. The two things I always tell people when they're, when they're pregnant, when they're getting pregnant is don't paint your nursery. Have someone else paint your nursery. Don't be around when those VOCs are off gassing from that paint. I know it's so fun to set up your nursery and decorate it, but just have someone else paint it and be gone for that day. And also have um, someone else pump your gas if you can. Um, try not to get those fumes as well. Thank you, Joe, for those very concrete tips. I think those are very useful <laughs> for people to hear. Thank you. Yeah, and if people want more information, they can always go to our website. We have a toxic-free guide. We have under our approved product, we have a whole list of not just personal care product, but also as Joe mentioned, we even have water filter. Thanks to Tina for curating many of the products uh, so people can check it out on our website. This episode was produced and edited by Jiaxing Feng. Theme music by Joe Rochester and Grady Harper. Visit us at millionmarker.com to learn about our test kit and other services, read our blog posts on a variety of topics, ask a question that you'd like answered, or suggest a topic for us to discuss on the show. Thanks for listening.